I invite you to join me for some playful yoga classes at Power of Your Own. We overlook the beautiful Santa Ynez Mountains in the heart of downtown Santa Barbara and are known as the friendliest yoga studio in California. Locals can take advantage of our introductory offer of two weeks of unlimited sessions for only 40 bucks. Go to powerofyourom.com to sign up. That's powerofyourom.com. Welcome to the Messy Progress Podcast, the show that will give you the courage and confidence to get messy, uncaged, and liberated so that you're living your most vibrant life. I'm your host, Adrian Smith, and I'm so stoked that you're here. Let's jump right in. All right, we're getting started with this new conversation in my podcasting space around cannabis. And I'm really excited to have Amanda here with me on the show and just to share a little bit about why this matters to me is when I was young, and I don't know exactly how old I was, my I can remember sitting at my kitchen counter with my dad and him telling me that I, like he gave me the, you know, dare campaign of saying no to drugs. And um, my dad was also, both of my parents were smokers. And so it was always interesting to get health advice from them because they didn't live that lifestyle. And I can still remember sitting in my kitchen and my dad telling me, you know, don't try anything. Don't do anything. You never know what it's laced with. You never know where it came from. And I know that his purpose and his intention was good because he had had people in his life that took the wrong turns with different substances that they were taking. But I also now, as I'm older, I realize that so much of this world that I've been opened up to more recently, it has come from my desire to learn more and to educate myself and to experience things for myself. And my dad didn't, he came from a place of love and care for me, but he also didn't come up from a place of true knowledge. And so um, I am 43 and I've just, it's so what, what is December, December 30th of 2022 was my first time that I ever had any cannabis in my system. Wow. So when I say that I'm a newborn giraffe on ice, I truly am. <laughs> so when your eyes are like lighting up and you say, wow, what's coming, what's coming up as I share that with you? Well, you know, honestly, I think there's a lot of attention paid to teen substance use. But, you know, the message that we like to give rather than the just say no message that you received is the just say wait message. Hmm. Because the reality is, is that there are a lot of activities like driving, for example, that we understand are going to be safer when somebody does it when they're a bit older and they're a bit a better able to handle the responsibility that comes with that action. And so I personally think that the older people are when they initiate into cannabis, the better opportunities they have to develop healthy relationships with it. And a lot of times when we see folks that have unhealthy relationships with cannabis, it is use that started quite young, uh, maybe before folks could really understand the implications of changing their perceptions and what that means for their own development. Um, I think the same is true for psychedelics. And so when somebody is an adult and, you know, they don't have to be in their 40s, but, you know, in their 20s even, uh, you know, mid to late 20s, 
I feel that they are much better able to integrate these kind of experiences into their lives with the right intentions and with intentions and experiences that are going to add to their life and not be a distraction and not, you know, threaten their ability to achieve what they want to achieve. And I'm not saying that, you know, smoking pot when you're a teenager is like a horrible thing that no one should ever do because the reality is a lot of people do do it. But in terms of developing healthy relationships with the plants, which is really my focus, I think that delaying is better. And yeah, maybe I could drive a car when I was 12, but it wasn't a good idea. It was a much better idea to wait until I was old enough to understand how the traffic laws work and what that responsibility was like and what the potential harms could be from me engaging in that activity. And, you know, even if we look at the way we, I personally drank alcohol when I was 17, 18 versus how I drink alcohol now, it's very clear to me that with age comes perspective and comes the ability to temper your behavior to give you the outcome you want. Absolutely. And you can really apply that to so many things, right? Like wait till you're older to have sex, wait till you're older to drink, wait till you're older to even travel. Like there's so many things that I have a six-year-old daughter and, um, you know, she can ride a bike and she can ride on our e-bike with us. But if that bike fell on her, she would be crushed. I mean, she knows enough how to even steer it, but it's like not, it's, she doesn't have the ability to even keep her focus straight. Cause she's like a dog that's, you know, all of a sudden on a walk and smells another dog's pee and, you know, squirrel and that kind of thing. And so I see that now as I'm older from, you know, she's only six. So it's a very big drastic difference between a teenager, but even the teenagers, and now with the extra layers of distraction that we all have with consuming information and not even realizing that we're taking stuff in when we're scrolling on our computers and cell phones, and all of a sudden you're like, holy smokes, 10 minutes just passed by and I didn't pay attention to what was going on in my own body and instead was in someone, immersed in someone else's life. Yep, Absolutely. How do you see the, you know, the world of the fact that there is so much information available to us, you being someone that's, I wouldn't say like you're on a full mission to share all of this information, but to have a new relationship with, um, with your brand called personal plants was like having a new relationship, but where people are getting their information from can be everyone's like a Instagram social media expert when it comes to these things now. And so how do you play in that space as someone that truly is educated and has spent, you know, a good portion of their life researching, studying this, practicing it, experimenting and learning on your own? That's a great question. And I was actually talking to my partner about this the other day because he and I were saying that one of the big risks of social media is that it used to be that when somebody had an opinion but had no background or education or expertise in the area, they didn't have a huge audience. You know, maybe they were like shouting to their neighbor or their friends and they were like, oh, there goes so-and-so again with all their opinions about this. But now if people know how to market themselves, which has nothing to do with knowledge, it just has to do with marketing, you have people that have very loud voices and lots of followers who are saying things that are absolutely incorrect and inaccurate. 
And that's scary. And I've seen it. You know, I've seen Canna influencers on social media say things that are not scientifically true, give advice that could actually be harmful. But because they know how to make cute videos and know how to market themselves, they have a really big following. And I feel that that's dangerous, when we're, especially when we're talking about healthcare, right? Um, and so as someone who has the expertise and has been studying this area for over 20 years and is a, a scholar and an academic, but I'm also a Gen Xer, I'm 47. And so, you know, I'm not as fluent in how to gain that audience and, and how to market myself through those channels because it's not something I grew up doing, right? I mean, we didn't have the internet when I was growing up. We didn't have smartphones. We didn't have Instagram or any of that. But at the other hand, I feel like I have a responsibility to have my voice out there because there are so many inaccurate voices and taking the wrong advice can be dangerous when it comes to intoxicating or psychoactive substances. So I founded Personal Plants a little over three years ago as a way to cut through the noise a little bit and say, look, everything I present to you is going to be based on research. It's going to be based on the evidence. I'm not taking a yay cannabis or a boo cannabis approach to this. I'm taking a realistic cannabis approach to this. And unfortunately, because we had prohibition for so long and because people didn't have access to good information about cannabis, you know, if I think back to my drug education days in high school, you know, we were taught that one ounce of liquor equals, you know, six ounces of wine equals 12 ounces of beer. We were taught what the effects of alcohol were and how to stay safe. We were taught about drinking and driving. We were taught about alcohol overdose. We were taught about all these things with the assumption that someday we were going to use alcohol and that it was a good idea for us to understand how to use it safely. We didn't get any of that information about cannabis, right? It was just like what you got from your dad. Don't do it. It's dangerous. Just don't. Here's your brain on drugs. Right. So now that people are looking at cannabis and trying it because it's legal and the, the ideas, the destigmatization is happening, the normalization is happening, there's a real absence of accurate information. And what you find when you go online is you either find the prohibitionist stuff, which is like, don't ever use it, it's terrible, and most of that comes from the government, or you have kind of the industry message, which is, it's great. You can use it all the time and there's no risk. And, you know, that's kind of like when the alcohol companies tell you to drink responsibly and you're like, yeah, I hear you, but don't you make money off of me drinking? And don't you want me to drink in order to make that money? And I think that there's a lot of cannabis companies that do want their consumers to be safe and to have the knowledge, but they're doing it in this context of we sell this product. So where is the middle voice? right? Where is the voice that's going to acknowledge the harms, is going to acknowledge the benefits, and is really going to focus on a balanced, healthy relationship? And I feel that's where I come in. And, you know, I call myself the Dr. Ruth of cannabis because I always really admired Dr. Ruth because I feel that she took a very controversial subject of sex and she made it very pragmatic and matter of fact and, you know, not shaming anyone for sex, but also not being a part of the sex industry, even though she's not against the sex industry. She came at it as a scholar and as a person that had experience in the research and the knowledge. And that's really what I'm trying to do. So I have, you know, my blog on personal plants. We have a newsletter. Um, we're launching a series of very short, like 10-minute 
educational videos answering questions about cannabis. So can you get addicted to it? Is smoking dangerous? Is it a gateway drug? How long does it stay in your system? Can you use it during pregnancy? And really trying to give people these really short, actionable, evidence-informed answers so that they're not sifting through the it's terrible and it's great information trying to find the truth, which can be very frustrating. And for somebody that's new, you really have no idea where to look and you don't know who you can trust. Yeah. And to to your point, you said, you know, when we were younger, and I don't know what they're teaching, to be honest, in schools now, but I do remember learning about just the what you said, don't do drugs. And here's all about alcohol. But are they teaching anything about the stuff that they I mean, it's this, it's this weird slippery slope, right? You're like, don't try this one, but this one's probably going to be something that you do try. Cause there are obviously there are therapeutic benefits to cannabis. There is not therapeutic benefits to heroin. So like to be really clear about how you educate kids, but you also have to be honest about. Right. You definitely have to be honest about level of harm. Right. And look, I mean, I think one of the main things that dictates level of harm is the potential for death. Right. And alcohol has the potential for death. Yeah. Um, And we know that the legal status of a drug does not speak to its safety profile. Right. Because alcohol and tobacco are legal and cannabis is illegal. Now, in terms of what they're teaching in schools, for the most part, it's still the prohibition messaging. So it's still illegal drugs are dangerous. Don't use them. Alcohol is legal. Let's teach you how to use it safely. Pharmaceuticals are safe if they're prescribed by a doctor. And, you know, all of this rhetoric doesn't match the science. So I do think that there are some schools, especially schools in places where cannabis is legal, because they understand that, you know, the kids are getting exposure, whether that's their parents using it or they go drive by a dispensary or walk by a dispensary. Um, So there is a program that actually one of my former students, who's now a PhD student at Stanford, founded called No Drugs, K-N-O-W. And it really focuses on harm reduction. And I'm a big believer in harm reduction, which is basically the idea that even unsafe behaviors can be made safer without demanding abstinence from those behaviors, right? Condoms are harm reduction, bike helmets are harm reduction, seatbelts are harm reduction. Um, And so really taking that approach and understanding that young people are going to experiment So rather than just tell them not to, which doesn't work, let's give them tools so that when they do experiment, they don't have outcomes that harm them or that create lasting negative impacts on their life. And so I think that's the right approach to take with teens. You know, they don't want to be told, no, don't do something. It makes them want to do it. Um, Nobody wants to be told no. no, But especially (laughs) adolescents. But if you instead give them the message of, look, this is a behavior that you can absolutely engage in as an adult, but let's talk about the risks and benefits so that you can make good choices when that time comes. Yeah, I love that because it is this dance of, I don't want to say everyone's going to do it. And at the same time, there's a, I think, a fear in the space, especially nowadays with, I don't want to share this thing that could be kind of canceled. And then in the education system as well is like, you know, then someone, everybody, you know, I think the, the whole politics around, I've, I'm seeing as I've gotten older is like health is political. 
our wellness is political. We don't look at it that way, but then when you kind of start to back up, you're like, oh, it is pharmaceuticals. There's money to be made here. Cannabis, there's money to be made here. Shampoo, there's money to be made. Procter & Gamble, like all these companies. And you start to realize, wait, oh, I can't get this information into school because now it's political. And and so it's, people are going to find this stuff no matter what it's a matter of then once they get access to it like you said is now you have a choice what are you going to do right and how much information do folks have so that they can make good decisions um you know years and years ago when i was in my early 20s i was an hiv educator for the red cross and i used to go to high schools and educate students about how they could contract hiv and how to protect themselves and you know we and so there were some schools I went to where I had carte blanche to just talk about it, right? They were like, great, you're here. Let's talk about sex with the students. And then I had some schools that I went to that were like, all right, we're going to have you come in, but you can't talk about condoms. And I'd be like, how am I going to talk about protecting yourself from HIV without talking about condoms? And they're like, well, just abstinence. Mm. And so that is political, Right. I mean, it's this idea that we know the best way to help kids not contract HIV is for them to know about condom use. Right. Like that's been proven in public health research time and time and time again. But the politics would prevent a school from doing what the science says is the best route. And we absolutely see the same thing with 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 drugs. I mean, for a really long time, and it may even still be true, D.A.R.E. was the only federally funded drug education program. And, you know, here you had uniformed police officers going into classrooms, you know, talking about drug use as it is a crime. And it wasn't effective. Every study that was done on D.A.R.E. showed that it did not stop kids from using drugs. But the government completely ignored that research um, because that was the right message they wanted. And it was the right messenger. So drugs have always been politics. Like they've always it's always been a political tool um, ever since they came to the U.S. or we started considering their use in the U.S. Yeah. And you said before about how, you know, you've been in this industry for a really long time. You've been learning about it for even before you were educating people, obviously. And now you're, we're in this space of, if we don't use our knowledge and our experience from this platform, on the platforms that are available People are going to get either no information or they're going to get perhaps the wrong information from someone that's just making cheeky videos. And um, and then we I mean, we see it. What's crazy. The thought that I just had was when once the covid pandemic happened and we started to be on Zoom more, we started to care a lot more about what we looked like up close and friend of mine works at a plastic surgery center in town. And she said the number one thing that they started to administer wasn't boob jobs anymore. It was facelifts because more people were on zoom. Wow. And then we start to see, you know, you go on um, Snapchat or Instagram and we can all have filters. And so then all of a sudden everyone thinks that we actually look, people look that way and guess what they're going to get. They're going to get something to make them look the way that everybody else looks. And so I bring all that up because you and I are both, I feel like I, I feel I can relate to you when it comes to sharing knowledge and information on social. Cause number one, I don't want to spend time there. I just would rather be 
with people out in the world coming up with content versus figuring out how I'm going to have it displayed so when someone pays attention to me. But then I realized that I, if I don't put stuff out there, then I'm doing a disservice and pe- there could be more harm. So for you, how do you manage that in your, and in your different kind of businesses and these different videos and stuff that you create? How do you, do you just say, I'm going to create a plan. I'm going to, um, create this content schedule and just put it together as like, and hand it off to someone else to do it. Or do you take it all on yourself? Well, I take it all on myself. Um, I don't have a plan. (laughs) I have no plan. No, I do. So, you know, I have, I, I put out a new article on my website every other week. And then on the off weeks, I send out a newsletter. And then I, when I have a new article that gets posted, I, you know, do a promo for it on, you know, Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter as or X, whatever it is, um, as much as I can with cannabis. I mean, that's another thing is that cannabis is very, very much censored on social media. So I can't promote anything through my accounts. Um, I can't do Google ads. Um, a lot of ways that people amplify their message is not available to cannabis unless you have a lot of money. I mean, Twitter, you know, said that they would allow people to advertise cannabis on Twitter. You have to pay, it's something like $250,000 a quarter just to do it. So it's not available to small time people that are just trying to build an audience. It's only available to like Cheech and Chong, who I get an ad for their gummies, like literally every five seconds. Um, so, you know, I try to say the content speaks for itself. And when I do put something out, I get a lot of really good response. You know, I've started, I have started to do these little videos because I know video content's very popular. Um, and I get a lot of good response and people really like what I have to say. And, you know, so I just take heart in that, that like I right now prefer quality over quantity And I'd rather have a hundred people watch the video and all really take to heart what I'm saying and, you know, really get the message than a thousand people watch it just because I have something cool on the green screen behind me and I'm just getting their attention. But what I'm saying goes in one ear and out the other. And so I think that that's important to remember when folks are creating content, especially around a topic like cannabis or drugs, it's very controversial where there's a lot of misinformation, is that the number one goal is getting the information out there and then kind of worrying about how does it take off or not take off. And I haven't really figured it out yet. You know, I, I tried TikTok once and I posted a video of my dog eating a cannabis leaf because she loves the, le- the fan leaves that come off the plant. And it got taken down for drugs and animal cruelty. And I was like, all right, I have no, I don't know. I don't know how to do this. Yeah. Um, when that happens for you, Amanda, do you feel defeated? How do you, do you, do you, I feel like that? I'm out of touch. I just, I just feel like it's a, it's a thing that like I, that it's like for a group of people that are in that world where that's part of their lifestyle. And it's just not part of mine. You know, I, I don't like to just sit and be on social media. Um, I don't, you know, I'll go days and weeks without saying anything on social media. And I know that like that you're not supposed to do that. Like if you want engagement, like you have to constantly post. And, you know, I'm just that I'm just not into that. You know, I've always, even though I really enjoy public speaking, it's like my favorite thing that I do is to get up in front of a group and teach people something. Um, and even though I love that, I've really always had a hard time with self-promotion. 
Mm-hmm. Like I always say, like I could never run for office because the idea of going around and just saying vote for me and vote like that is like, I want to want to crawl back into bed and like not come out from under the covers. It's just, it very, it's very uncomfortable for me. So if there was somebody that came along and was like, I love what you're doing. I want to promote you. You just have to create content. I totally be down. Yeah. You know, it's but- funny that you bring this up because just yesterday I was having a conversation with my husband, something completely different. He works in the endurance sport world and he was trying to post something on Facebook and he has hyperhidrosis. So his hands were sweating and he literally- I have that too. Oh, you do? Yeah. How do you deal with it? We'll digress oh for a second. Well, it's gotten better since I've gotten older. Thank goodness. Um, I don't know if that's a hormonal thing, you know, um, but when it was kind of at its height in my 20s and 30s, I used to get the Botox injections under my armpits. Okay. It was horrible. It was the most painful thing. Oh, it worked. It worked amazingly, but it was so painful. I mean, I had to get like 50 little pricks underneath each armpit, which is a very sensitive part of your body. And every time I would talk to my dermatologist and be like, have they come up with anything else yet? Like, is there any other way to deal with this? Because it was so painful. Um, But now, like I said, it's really subsided a lot since I've gotten into like my mid 40s. Um, and so hopefully, you know, that's one of the benefits of hormonal changes is that you don't have as active sweat glands anymore. Yeah. But anyway, um, thank you for sharing that. Cause he's, it's one of those things that I'm sure you can imagine, a, you know, you deal with it is like, ah, this is debilitating. And, um, but anyway, so he throws his phone on the ground and he, he's like, I just, he's like, I can't do anything. And he's just like super frustrated and and then he said, maybe I need an assistant. And then I just sat and I was listening and, and he's, and he went on and he's just like, I don't want to promote my, I don't want to promote the things I'm doing. I just have never been someone that's like, Hey, look at me. Hey, pay attention to this. And he said, but maybe if I gave it to someone to do, then they, then I would be able to do it. Cause then there's that separation from it. And what I said to him was, I, I, and I know him super well, and I, I don't know you as well, obviously, but the fact that you have a, a newsletter that goes out every other week and that you post something to your blog or your website every other week in the off times and you're creating content, you're creating things, is like you're already doing all those things. You are promoting yourself, but it's just not this like flashing headlines out there, um, you know, just acknowledging you for saying yes to wanting to be on this podcast and for, you know, being willing already to put stuff out there and to try things. Um, what I had said to him was, well, here's the thing though, is like, if you want to have an assistant, you have to get organized to give them the stuff that you want them to, to share about you. And I was like, at some points you have to, that might be more frustrating than actually promoting yourself in the, in the first place, because it's not as easy as like, oh, hey, I need this one thing shared, come up with something in the next 15 minutes to post on my social media, right? Like we have to, as being in, and sharing any information, being out there in the public, there has to be a little bit of planning that comes with the content that we put out. Otherwise, it's, it doesn't have, uh, well, we have to do it all ourselves because we want to do it on our timeline, how have you dealt with that in like your world in putting things out there, creating, you teach it at schools. How do you go from like that start to finish process for creating a course? Because I know that you have one coming out soon. That would be like a good place to start. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've been, I've been teaching for, gosh, you know, over 20 years 
at the college level. And that never was like a barrier for me. Like, you know, writing a course, teaching a course, all of that content, like that comes very naturally. If someone were to say, all right, we're going to take your course online and you get $10 for everybody that signs up. Here's all the promotional materials. Go promote it. That's where I start to get like, and it's a part of it is that I overthink, right? So it's, and, and that's just me as a person, right? So when I'm like, all right, I have to get this out there. I'm always overthinking like, oh, it has to be perfect. And I have to get, and I've charted to like, not do that. Like I'll literally get an idea and I'll be sitting here like in my PJs and hair up and, you know, like end of the day and glasses on and I'll get an idea and I'll just turn the camera around and just say it into the camera and then I'll just post it. And I'm like, you know what? It doesn't have to have like a cute banner or green screen or capture all the things. I'm just, I just want the, the, it to be out there. And I think that's kind of what I, my whole career has been like that, you know, um, you know, because when I started this work, there was no cannabis industry. There was no cannabis research career path. Like none of those things existed, but I just knew that this was important information and so even though there weren't like, there wasn't fanfare around it or like, you know, people giving each other awards about it and like all the things we see today, I was just like, this is something, you know, this is just, this is information that needs to be out there. This is data that needs to be gathered. These are things we need to learn about. Um, and I'm just going to start them. for you. How did that, what was your beginning um, journey of knowing that you needed to share this with the world more? So it really started when I moved from Chicago to the Bay Area which was in 2002. Where did and, you live in Chicago? Because that's I'm from the suburbs. Oh, okay. Well, my parents live in Highland Park. Okay. And I lived on the South Loop. So I went to the University of Illinois, Chicago for okay. undergrad and for my master's. Okay. Um, so I moved out here to, to Oakland to start the PhD program at Berkeley in 2002. And, you know, we had had medical cannabis in California for, for six years at this point. Um, but we really didn't hear about it in other parts of the country. Like it wasn't, you know, something we saw in the news in Chicago. It wasn't something we really heard about. And this was before smartphones and social media and like nonstop information sharing. So it wasn't like we were seeing images of dispensaries or anything that was happening in that side of the country. Um, I had already been a cannabis consumer, uh, for, you know, since I was like a late teenager, um, and then in my early 20s, I was diagnosed with arthritis in my feet. So I started using cannabis in lieu of cortisone injections to manage pain associated with that. And then I moved to uh, Oakland and I became a medical cannabis patient because it was open to me. It was an option. Um, and so I got my card and I started going to dispensaries. And I realized that so much of what I've been taught about cannabis was just bull. I mean, I saw, you know, I was taught like who was using cannabis and what they were using it for and, you know, kind of that whole culture and what it meant. And what I saw with my own eyes was very different. So were you saying that there was like a stereotype and then there yeah, was actual, yeah, it was a huge yeah. stereotype. And when I went to dispensaries, what I saw was not like a drug den as we had been kind of led to believe with all kinds of nefarious characters, like, you know, trying to escape from reality. It was a community health center. And the people that were coming in there were community members and they were all types and ages and shapes and sizes and backgrounds. And they were all using cannabis for therapeutic purposes and it was really helping them. And the dispensary was providing 
to access to the internet and access to fruits and vegetables and free chiropractic care and free massages and access to legal help if you needed it. And it sounded like a wellness, like you said, a community a center, like a wellness center. center. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And so I was starting my program in social welfare and hearing about other sectors of social services, whether that's child welfare services or addiction services or housing services, it just seemed that no other sector of social services was providing such a holistic approach to care as the medical cannabis dispensaries were. And so I felt like it was something that needed to be captured. You know, I, I knew that we were moving in a direction of capitalism. Uh, when it came to cannabis, and that we would see these centers kind of fall away for having instead pharmacy type uh, environments. Um, and so I felt like it was something that needed to be captured and published, and we needed to know that it existed and how important it was. So I decided to do my doctoral dissertation in 2005 on medical cannabis dispensaries and how they operated as health service providers. And I did a survey of patients. Um, I had 130 patients in my sample. Uh, at that time, it was the largest sample of medical cannabis patients in existence. So just to give you an idea of how little we knew about the use of medical cannabis back in 2005, 2006, uh, we really knew nothing. The government was funding no research in this area. Uh, Berkeley was very gracious to allow me to do this for my project, given that they'd never had a cannabis study before come through the university. And because I was one of the only people doing this work, um, it kind of thrust me into this, you know, kind of ground floor of something where I became known in the academic circles and research circles as like the cannabis researcher. And, um, and I decided to just continue that work. And it meant that I couldn't kind of go the route of a traditional PhD researcher, which is to get government grants in order to do your work. There were no government grants to study this, this side of cannabis. Um, so I really had to pave my own way. And, and doing that, I got to experience a lot of different sectors of the burgeoning industry. I got to work as director of research at a dispensary. I got to work as manager of marijuana law and policy for a large policy reform nonprofit. Um, I got to work as vice president of community development for a cannabis distributor at post-legalization, and then kind of now being the chief knowledge officer at New Frontier Data, where we are a data and analytics company that serves the legal cannabis space. So it's bringing in technology and data to help businesses thrive, to better understand the impact of policies and consumers on business development. But that's given me a really amazing view of the entire space. And I feel like that combined with the fact that I've been observing it and studying it for over 20 years really gives me the perspective of kind of this whole story, you know, going back to the early days of prohibition and coming into today of how we got here. And I feel like, you know, there's a lot of excitement around cannabis, but when I see people on social media it's all about consumption, right? It's like, you know, let me show you how big a hit I can take and this cool joint I rolled and all these cool places I'm smoking. And like, I get that because that's content people want to see and give likes and comments to, but it really does nothing to help our society who already has a problem with moderation mm -hmm. develop healthy and balanced relationships with this plant. Yeah, that's awesome. I want to read you on that note. I want to read you a text that I received from. So I own a yoga studio in Santa Barbara. And back in April, 
I had a good friend of mine from Chicago come out to teach a class at my studio called Cannabis. And what it was, was an introduction to cannabis, followed by, um, started with a discussion, talking about cannabis, talking about people's current use of it, and then being able to experience it through, at this point in time, when I was advertising it, I thought it was just through smoking it, but she brought... um, uh, coconut oil infused with cannabis that we drank in a cacao. So you can either have your choice of smoking or this, um, this drink mix, which had like, I think it was like five milligrams of THC just for content. And, um, and then we did a, a little bit of a movement practice, um, some like somatic work and then had a closing circle. So there was 14 people or so that signed up to do this class and I was very nervous because I was putting it on as the host studio and I wasn't a cannabis cannabis lover because I like I had shared like I I had smoked weed for the first time in December of this last year and it wasn't something like oh my gosh I'm on a mission I have to share this but my friend is super passionate and she shared in her story of the opening of it was she said like 10 years prior she came to a yoga class at my studio that I used to have in Chicago And she had smoked some weed before class, got on her mat and was in child's pose. And she started to cry. And she said, I just started crying because, and she said, she's like, why is this illegal? And this was back in, you know, 2008 ish. And, and so when she shared that and how profound it had impacted her life, I didn't, I never knew that about her. It wasn't something that we had ever talked about before. But because I saw her in her, with her studio in Chicago put this kind of event out in her space so many times and be so passionate about it, I was like, I want to bring it here. I kind of know nothing, but I trust you. So to my to where I'm getting to this is I put it out there and you know, as people in the world that are putting things out there, we never know like how they're gonna land. We're not gonna reach everybody, we're not gonna make everybody stoked, we're gonna piss some people off a lot of people, and that always comes from, I feel like a misunderstanding or a lack of knowledge. But I posted this class and this was a text that I received from one of my clients. Feedback from one person. And I realize not everything is for everyone, but thought you should hear this. Disappointing that you would bring cannabis into the studio. So much of what you do surrounds building a healthy, better you. Cannabis is the second leading cause of lung cancer. Lots of arguments on both sides of it being a gateway drug. It is anti-ethical to someone serious about gaining cardio fitness, et cetera. If you are trying to get attendance up for this, for me, will have the opposite effect. I think you lost me as a customer. As I said, a sample of one, maybe the demand is there, but not for me. Thanks for listening. And I responded and I said, thanks for your feedback. You may be right. I'd love to have a conversation about it if you're open to it. No response. And this, this message came to me probably a week before I was doing this class. And so I reached out to my friend who was leading it. And I was like, I sat on it for a second. And then I was like, Hey, I'm not sure if I should do this. So it, it disrupted me. It got me like off of my like center. And then I sat on it for another day and I said, no, we're doing this. I was like, I want to do this. I don't even know why I want to do this, but the fact that she was so passionate about it, it was the beginning of me realizing that I think 
you know, we can be excited about something, but then it's a whole nother level to experience something and then learn about it. What are your thoughts as I share that with you? Well, I think that her opinion reflects the impact of propaganda. I mean, you know, when we talk about the messages we've been given around cannabis, those are the messages, right? It causes lung cancer, which the research actually says, no, cannabis does not cause lung cancer. So I'm not sure where she got the stat about the second leading cause of lung cancer. That's just false. I mean, it's just not true. Um, And then, you know, the gateway argument. I mean, this was the argument I was taught in school, right? That cannabis leads to other things, that using cannabis makes you want to use harder drugs. There's been so much research to debunk that, right? So, you know, if we look at the number of people that use cannabis and the number of people that use heroin, for example, if cannabis use made you want to use heroin, we'd see a lot more people using heroin because of the number of people that use cannabis, We have no evidence that cannabis somehow increases your desire. And in fact, if we do see a lead from cannabis to harder drugs, the reason is that when people buy cannabis on the illicit market and they buy it from a dealer, many times that dealer sells other things. And so they have access to things. When you go to buy it in a dispensary, you don't have access to other drugs. You only have access to cannabis. So, you know, the argument has been made that prohibition is really what puts you at risk for being exposed to other substances in your quest to purchase cannabis. But I think what she's demonstrating is something that I've learned a lot in doing this work, which is that people make decisions with their hearts and not their heads. And if they feel like something is bad, right, they've developed that feeling around it, then really the only way they're going to change their mind is if they replace that feeling with another feeling. So like you could go back to that person and you could give her all the articles that say, look, look at this research by so-and-so, you know, cannabis doesn't cause lung cancer. And look at this research by so-and-so, cannabis isn't a gateway drug. And they would find another reason to maintain how they feel about it. You know, and so when you hear legislators talk about, when you hear legislators that were against medical cannabis come around and now are there for it. When they talk about that transition, it's never, well, these people gave me this research. And once I looked at the data, I realized I was wrong. Their messaging is always, I was against this. And then my mother, brother, sister, friend got sick and this helped them. And so now I feel differently about it. And that had nothing to do with their heads. You know, for years, I gave Diane Feinstein's office data about cannabis. And the only thing that made her come around finally at the end on medical was that she talked to patients. And so when you have someone that comes back with kind of those talking points, those prohibition talking points, what that tells me is that they've developed a feeling around cannabis being bad. And they are justifying that feeling with talking points that they've heard. But replacing those talking points with other talking points is not going to change how they feel about it. Now, if she had a friend that came to her and said, you know what, I was going through cancer treatment and I used cannabis for with my chemotherapy and oh my gosh, it was the most amazing, like I wouldn't have been able to get through without it. And she trusts that person and cares about that person. That's what's going to challenge those assumptions. Yeah. I love this so much because this is, I feel like in a way what I've, I feel like I've been put on the planet to do because I've had, we've all had it happen but I have the courage at, to to share it, to be like, this happened to me and I completely changed my whole way of behaving in the world as a result 
of an internal emotional shift. And, um, you know, you brought up earlier about several things. We've talked about politics. We've talked about it as health. We've talked about it as therapy. We've talked about um, education in schools. One of the things that I loved that you brought up in one of your videos was this quote about if you give a man a fish, he can eat for a day. If you teach a man to fish, he can eat for a lifetime. Say more about why that quote matters in this industry. Well, you know, we are fed a lot of information about cannabis and we're just supposed to accept it, right? Cannabis is a gateway drug. Cannabis causes lung cancer. Cannabis, you know, makes you stupid. Cannabis reduces your IQ. Can't, I mean, all of these things, we're just supposed to accept them. And we're just supposed to say, okay, so I just shouldn't use it. And what I've always been more in favor of is teaching people how to evaluate information for themselves so that if somebody makes a claim, they know how to figure out if they should believe that claim or not. And it's not just around cannabis. You know, we see this all over the place. And I, you know, we going back to social media, if somebody has influence and has convinced people that they know what they're talking about, people will just accept what they say without doing any of their own thoughts, no critical thinking, no, why should I believe this statement? Where's the evidence to support what this person is saying? How good is that evidence? Is it just a YouTube video of some expert saying things or is it a research study? And if it's a research study, how do I know whether I should believe the results? And so I feel like we're not arming people with the ability to evaluate the validity of the information they're being presented. We're just telling them to take as truth whatever they're given. And then that really then becomes of the who, how much do they believe the person that's delivering the message? And we've associated believability with number of followers, with number of views, with number of likes. That does not equate to whether or not this person is a reliable narrator. But we aren't teaching people how to evaluate that. How do you teach people with this? Because one of the things I'm wanting to get to here is like the experiencing it. So you said you go from your, people go from all this information in their head, you're getting it, you're getting it, you're getting it, but they have a change of attitude and perspective in their body because someone else tried it, had an experience, it helped them in their dot, da dot, da dot, you fill in the blank. And so then all of a sudden they're like, They've had, they have all the information, all the knowledge and, but someone, it's like, I believe you now because kind of like with my friend, I believed her because she had such a profound shift in her just overall energetics of herself. But where I got to with her was I wanted to be with someone that I trusted and shared like a certain amount with, and how do I like, and I just can remember being in that environment being like, I don't even know how to smoke a joint. Like I feel super awkward. This, I feel like I'm like, you know, back in junior high where I'm like, am I doing the right thing related to anything in life? And so, um, how does someone go from, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm a little ready. I'm still scared to the experiencing of cannabis for, you know, the first time, how do they know what, how do they decide? And I should say no, because knowing comes from your own intuition, because you kind of just have to like try something like just with this podcast, I had to just start it. I didn't know how to be a podcaster, but you become a podcaster by podcasting. You become a speaker by speaking. So how do you become a cannabis user at the, the time that's, you know, 
you're curious about it and willing to trust with the information, what is that kind of first step? Well, I would tell people to go to mypersonalplants.com because I have a lot of content on there about what is mindful consumption, how do you reduce the risks of using too much, um, what are, you know, the different methods of ingestion will make a difference in terms of how you experience it. So because we haven't been afforded the opportunity to learn these things in school, education is important. Um, So, you know, get versed, you know, what's the difference between eating it and smoking it? Um, You know, what is a THC overdose and how do you prevent it from happening? Uh, What are some of the effects you're going to look for? What are some of the things you can expect? What are some of the signs and times you don't want to do it? Um, So I think it's important to, to learn these things, you know, because we were never taught these things. And, you know, you are ingesting an intoxicating substance. The way you ingest it, the place you ingest it, who you're with, what your intention is, is going to impact your experience. And it's important to have these early experiences be positive ones. So when I was teaching at Berkeley, you know, like my my class was like 20 year olds, you know, and I would have a lot of students that would come up to me during the semester and say, you know, two years ago, someone gave me a brownie at a party And I got super paranoid and I got really anxious and overwhelmed. And now anytime I try any cannabis product, I get that same feeling. And you don't want that to happen, right? You want to understand what you're doing, just like we understand that you're not going to fill a 12-ounce beer glass with liquor, even because it's alcohol and beer is alcohol, right? Like we understand those nuances of how to ingest alcohol to get the effect we want. And so it's no different from with, with cannabis, right? It's like- I've this before with coffee too. Like we are yeah. ingesting drugs all the time. Like we know how to regulate coffee intake for ourselves. And so I think when you said that in that talk that you gave, it reminded me of how smart we actually are if we're paying attention or we give ourselves some credit about the things that we have done and tried in the past. Like, you know, take it substance aside, but like riding a bike, the first time you rode a bike, like you had someone kind of holding you behind so that you felt like you were safe. You didn't just right, go and on. You did it like in front of your house, like on the street and you didn't take it to like a mountain bike track <laughs> and like try to do that, right? Like you learned about what was safe and you did it until you felt comfortable. And then once you felt comfortable, you could use it a little bit more independently. So yes, I would highly recommend that if somebody's newer to cannabis, you really learn about the different methods of consumption and how they impact effect. You do it with somebody who is experienced, right? And so if nothing else, they can help you understand if what you're feeling is normal and expected and how to handle it and how to use it. And if you have a negative experience or you start to feel anxious, they can help kind of talk you through what that is. And the thing about cannabis use is that is a huge social learning activity. So there was a book written in the 1950s called How to Become a Marijuana User. And the sociologist interviewed a whole bunch of people about their first cannabis experiences. And what he found was that many times people didn't feel high the first time they used it. Um, It took a few times for them to actually absorb what was happening around them, how other people were interacting with it in order to really feel the effects of cannabis. So it is very much a social activity. So I would not recommend that someone try it for the first time by themselves because you may not get the right experience. Find your fr- a friend, your grandchild, your niece, your neighbor, um, someone you feel comfortable with that you know uses cannabis and use it with them. Mm, I love that. 
You mentioned this kind of like one of the last questions before we go into my little um, rapid fire is you mentioned uh, the the smoking part and that's where I got tripped up. And I, you know, when I read that text, I related, I was like, my, I lost my dad from lung cancer, but he was a lifelong smoker. But like he struck the chord there with me when I when I got that message, and that's like been the place that I've always been tripped up about it. Um, and so, guide me just where would I where do I find that information around that research? That's like they're not related: the smoking, cannabis, and lung cancer. Uh, well, I'll tell you the researcher that did the study at UCLA. His name was Arnold Tashkin. Uh, you can look up his research. Um, but there's been several studies looking at the relationship between cannabis smoking and lung cancer. And there's definitely a dose effect response in terms of potential harms from smoking. Now, the reason they think it does, there's two reasons why we think it doesn't cause lung cancer. One is that cannabinoids are actually anti-cancer agents. So, you know, when you're inhaling cannabinoids into your lungs, it can be doing some damage control um, and preventing any cancer from happening. The other big reason is that the magnitude by which most people smoke cannabis is not on par with the magnitude with which cigarette smokers smoke cigarettes. A regular cigarette smoker is going to smoke maybe one to two packs of cigarettes a day. Even your most avid joint smoker is not smoking 20 to 40 joints a day. And most people are smoking maybe a joint in the evening. And so you're not introducing enough into your system in order to have that effect. Now, Long-term smoking of cannabis, and, and I have an article about this on, on personal plants, but long-term smoking of cannabis and heavy smoking, not just like a joint in the evening, but like multiple joints per day, has been associated with emphysema, or not emphysema, with bronchitis, um, you know, with lung irritation, and with gum disease. Um, and I think that could be because it dries your mouth out, mm -hmm. and so that can cause bacteria to form. Um, so gingivitis, we have seen that. Um, and so, yes, it can be an irritant. Um, it can have some negative effects. I recommend that people do not smoke. Um, I stopped smoking myself at the beginning of 2023 and switched to a dry flower vape only, um, which has been much better for my health and my voice and my skin and all the things you see associated with smoking. Um, but, you know, if you're an occasional consumer, Smoking isn't isn't going to do anything. Okay. It's really the folks that are consuming day in and day out through smoking that we want to target with harm reduction and then have them kind of temper their smoking with other methods of ingestion. Okay, great. All right. We're going to finish this up with some rapid fire. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. So in some of these, you might not have a favorite, so we can skip okay. too. Um, but favorite podcast right now? Oh, you know, I don't listen to podcasts. <laughs> Or let's say favorite way that you get, um, like favorite person that you follow or information that you also get besides research articles. Um, well, I subscribe to Marijuana Moment, which is a daily newsletter, which has been going on for a long time, which is a great way to just get all of the cannabis news, like all the states, all the countries, all the cities, all the research updates. Um, so I would say that's probably my go-to source for my my work and kind of stuff. Okay. Favorite current song to sing to in the car? Well, I wish I listened to current music. Um, I can't say I do. Uh, but if I had to pick like songs that I like to sing to in the car, I love the soundtrack from the play Hair, the musical. Okay. Um, so if I have to drive a long distance, I'll usually put that on and sing along to that. Awesome. 
best thing about living in Mendocino County? Um, there's never traffic and I can always find parking. Ah, love it. Okay. We know that plants are medicine and that movement is also medicine. What's your favorite movement of choice? Dancing. All right. Dancing for sure. You could travel anywhere alone and someone else is paying for it. Where would you go? Um, I'd probably go to the South of France. I love the ocean and I love beautiful coastlines. Right on. What are you currently proud of yourself for? Still being in this industry after so long. I mean, you know, there's a lot of burnout. A lot of the OG folks that started off as advocates like myself are leaving the space when I, and I totally get that. Um, but I'm sticking it out. I feel like I have a responsibility to see this through and to really usher in this new era of plant medicine in a way that's responsible and based on knowledge. That's so great. What needs to be celebrated more in your life? I would say that, you know, I be, maybe it's because I'm a scientist or maybe it's because I'm super type A, but like I'm not, I have a great relationship. Like my partner and I, you know, we've been together for a long time, but I feel like I don't do enough to celebrate the relationships in my life. I feel like sometimes I take them for granted just because they're great and they're there. Um, so yeah, I would say I, I tend to be more work than play. Okay. All right. Last question. If your mess is your message, what else, if anything, do you want to share? Um, well, just that I'm here, you know, I, I'm a vessel for information. So if there's folks out there that want to learn more about this or have organizations that they want to learn about this, um, you know, and just really are having a hard time finding a middle ground person to bring accurate information in a way that's really accessible to the average person and isn't speaking kind of above their head, um, that's what I do. And so, you know, you can contact me through the website, mypersonalplants.com and, you know, anything, it can be online, it can be in person, but, you know, I'm really just here to help people be their best selves. And part of that is to have good relationships with psychoactive plants. I love it. Thank you for listening. If what you heard today lit you up in any way, please take the time to subscribe, like, and share the podcast with your friends. It'll help us reach more people in courageously and confidently rocking life. Make sure you follow me on Instagram to see the messy fun I'm up to at the Adrian Smith and check out my current wellness events and coaching programs on my website, alignedlivingnow.com. I look forward to being with you next week. Until then, get messy.